Friday, September 22nd, 2023, from Peachfish Productions, it's the gist, I'm Mike Pesca. The UAW strike has spread, and the American people back the workers. Recently on CNN, Jake Tapper cited a statistic of 75% support to lead to another statistic. And joining me now, Republican presidential candidate, former Vice President Mike Pence, joining us from Iowa. Thanks so much for joining us, Mr. Vice President. Uh, Let's talk about the auto workers' strike. You you blame the strike on President Biden's policies. Most Americans, 75%, according to Gallup, support the strikers. As a general principle, do you think it's fair that the CEO of General Motors makes 362 times what a typical GM employee makes? Well, no, not in terms of humanity, but maybe in terms of value added to the company or replaceability and value returned to shareholders in terms of their the CEO's unique impact on stock price, which is, of course, impossible to isolate as having been brought about by one person versus circumstance or any other person. Yeah, so tough question. CEO pay with companies that have a lot of blue-collar workers, it's always going to be a higher multiple than at knowledge companies with knowledge workers, Google versus Archer Daniels Midland, for example. Let's also take into account that Max Scherzer made $40 million to the heads of and CEOs of uh, Ford and GM's $30 million, and Max Scherzer is only the 170th best pitcher in baseball, and he makes a lot more than 300 times the guy slinging curly fries at Citi Field. So it's fair. It's also kind of not fair. It's definitely an interesting debate depending on how you look at it, but here's the important thing and why I bring it up. It's certainly not the right question to ask as far as the answer you seem to want, which is who will win the strike? Here's Sarah Nelson, president of the Association of Flight Attendants on MSNBC. Well, what's going to happen is that the workers are going to win here. Uh, They're going to stick together. I I want to be very clear that uh, times have changed. 75% of the American public are with the auto workers striking right now. But that's not why they're going to win, if in fact they're going to win. I think it seems likely, putting win in quotes, they'll get more of what they're asking for. Public sympathy plays a small, small role in who wins a strike like this. Who wins will be if the union has enough leverage and if the owners make a calculation that paying an increased wage would earn them more money overall than fighting for a lower wage, but halting production during that fight for a lower wage. That's it. There are some strikes where public sympathy matters a bit more in general with public workers because their negotiating partners are elected officials and elected officials are sensitive to sentiment. But with cars, no way. Very, very few people are boycotting Ford because of the strike. Would a boycott even help the workers? And if you added, oh, by the way, 75% of people who support the workers, if your next Ford Fiesta costs $3,000 more as a result of their higher page, what's your level of support now? It would go down. But that doesn't matter either. The actors and screenwriters have 67% support from the public. Does that mean they'll win? No, probably not. It's much more doubtful than with the automakers. Because the studios aren't operating attenuated supply chains where every day missed equals profits unrealized. Striking is about profits and demand and consumer cost and the wherewithal of negotiating parties, but mostly about spreadsheets. Public sentiment is interesting and it's important in a sort of reacting to all news intellectually sort of way but it in no way determines who is going to achieve their goals, who is going to win the strike. On the show today, it is an Antoine Tig. It's also the 500th episode of season two. Let's celebrate. Let's give me a review. 
Well, not me. I mean, the show, the show on one of those review places like Apple Podcasts. Let's share a good recent episode with a friend who might be so inclined to download. Let's just get crazy. But first, yesterday I interviewed former British MP Rory Stewart about his journey into and out of politics. The host of the Rest is Politics podcast is out with a new book, How Not to Be a Politician. And up next, we'll talk about the lessons of Obama, Biden, and Trump in terms of presidential styles and also what makes a good podcast. Rory Stewart, up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of the Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Rory Stewart's a former MP, UK cabinet minister, and veteran of the military and diplomatic corps. He stood against Boris Johnson for head of the Conservative Party after Brexit. His failure to win that vote is hilariously and honestly detailed in his new book, How Not to Be a Politician. In this half of the interview, I dug into the Trump v. Boris Johnson comparison. It seems to me that Trump and Trump supporters are engaged in a cult of personality, whereas Johnson certainly used his personality to charm and amuse and mislead. But it's my observation that the British public didn't mindlessly shift to whatever position Johnson shifted to just because it was Johnson doing the shifting. Well, it, it was, I mean, I think it's, it's slightly different because Britain is a slightly different country. And of course, Boris Johnson um, is more of a kind of comedian than Trump. I mean, he's a, he's a, he, a lot of his shtick was quite sort of comical and self-deprecating. Um, he, he was a sort of... Like He's a, a different gay- kind of comedian. I'd say he was a clown and Trump's more of an insult comic, but go Ex- on. Exactly. Yeah, no, they, they're yeah. both quite funny. I mean, I think one of the things that... I mean, I, it's a horrible thing to say. You know, I'm, yeah. I, I really dislike these people, but 
One of the advantages they have over conventional politicians is that they're, they're, they have a much sharper sense of humor. I mean, the truth of the matter is that if you look at people like me or David Cameron or Theresa May, who were the prime ministers in the UK, or look at Al Gore or John Kerry or Hillary Clinton, they're just not that funny, right? They're not quick on their feet. The, uh, Boris Johnson and Donald Trump, what they had in common is they were major media celebrities before they became politicians. You know, everybody in Britain knew who Boris Johnson was before he was standing. And that's a huge advantage in the modern world. Um, so I think that that's, that's the first thing. I think the second thing, though, is that you shouldn't imagine that the defeat of Boris Johnson is really the defeat of populism in Britain. I fear that what's going to mm. happen is that when Rishi Sunak, who's the current prime minister, loses the next election, the Conservative Party will again do a lurch to the right. It will again find a populist, anti-immigrant leader and if that person has enough charisma, and this is what we're talking about, I guess, with Boris Johnson and, and Donald Trump, if they've got enough charisma, they can probably mobilize a very, very unpleasant base. And, and that's because it's not just Twitter and Facebook now. We're now entering a world of artificial intelligence. And AI is going to be able to do things that we cannot begin to imagine. It will begin generating QAnons with a hundred times the force that it's going to be able to push through divisive cultural almost religious forms which will be very powerful in reinforcing populism yeah uh and and the only way to fight that would be for keir starmer and the labor government to deliver material benefits which the people see Yes, material benefits. Yes, clear ideas. Yes, standing for something. I mean, one of the problems for the center ground is what on earth do they stand for? It's often conventional politicians for 30, 40 years have always sort of triangulated. They've tried to follow the opinion polls. They've tried not to offend people. And that means that there's no sense of clear leadership. People need to see politicians make unpopular decisions. It's, it's an odd thing. It's difficult explaining this to politicians. You've got to say to Keir Starmer, who's the Labour leader, yeah, okay, your opinion polls are telling you it's going to be unpopular doing it, but you should do it because people mm -hmm. need to see that you stand for something. That's the first thing. I think the second thing is that they need to communicate. I mean, you, you can't, a politician is not like being a senior bank manager or a senior accountant. It, it, it is a job of being in the public. You've got to have a sense of humor. You've got to be able to press the flesh. You've got to be able to be larger than life. There, In the modern world, there's a certain amount of showmanship. I mean, this book, How Not to Be a Politician, is about my learning that being a politician is not like being a CEO. You don't, and, and I think that was actually one of the mistakes, maybe. I mean, the person that I guess I had most admiration for was Barack Obama. But looking back at him, I realized that one of his problems was that he tried to be a little bit too much like an intellectual CEO, spending, mm -hmm. you know, nine, 10 hours trying to get his heads around the details of things and run everything like a university seminar. In some ways, Joe Biden, for all his flaws, is a more nimble politician. Mm -hmm. He understands that actually it's not an academic exercise. Yeah, I think Joe Biden conceptualizes of the job better. I think Barack Obama was just so good at execution that it made up for maybe uh, some flaws of what he thought the job was. And on Trump, you just made me realize that his 
people credited him for being a CEO, which is what they say they want, but he was really in sales. And that's a different thing. He was in charge of the sales department, but that's the skill you need. Yeah, 100%. It's, it's, it's a sales job, a kind of marketing job. And it's, and, and the interesting thing about Trump, I mean, all the, all these books on his administration, it's true for Boris Johnson, it's true for all the populists. I mean, I think one of the stories that How Not to Be a Politician is about, if we just kind of expand it a little bit more, is that populism is now a global phenomenon. So in India, we have Narendra Modi, we had Bolsonaro in Brazil, but we've now got a woman called Giorgia Maloney as the Prime Minister of Italy. Mm-hmm. Probably the next president of France is going to be Marine Le Pen, who's from this previously sort of neo-fascist party. We've got almost neo-Nazis now in government in Sweden. We've got the horrible right-wing parties emerging in Germany. But the flaws of all these parties is that they're all salespeople. They're incredibly bad at actually governing and executing because the things that make them good salespeople are about radical simplification, no attention to detail, no humility, extraordinary arrogance. And those are not things which are helpful when you're really struggling with COVID or you're trying to work out what to do with China. Yeah. Well, Steve Jobs was a good salesperson, but also a genius CEO. It is possible to marry the two. It also helps to have an excellent world-changing product. Another thing about Trump and comparing him to Johnson, and this I think does get into the sales, maybe the lesson, uh, hearing what you said would be, well, Donald Trump better not betray the base. And I said things about the base is so ever-shifting, is that even possible? But how, how about this for a lesson? Maybe Donald Trump who is instinctive and understands these things, looks at the downfall of Boris Johnson and says, you know what he did wrong? He tried to do the right thing in the first place. That's unpopular. Shutdowns were unpopular. Trump would never have tried that. If you have a purely sales conception of the job, you would say, I can't sell that. And you'd stop there. Yes. And and I think that's right. And I think in a way, um, Boris Johnson's instincts were not to shut down. His instincts were very anti-lockdown. And, you know, he, he kept saying, we want herd immunity, let's rip, let it rip through the population. But he was boxed in by uh, scientific advice, and in the end, he gave into it. And I, I think that was good. I mean, it, it, it was problematic for Britain. It meant he was slow to lock down, and it also meant that he was slow to unlock, because he didn't naturally like this policy or understand it. But you're right that Trump might well take the lesson from that, which is that Boris Johnson in the end was maybe, and it's a horrible thing to say, because I think Boris Johnson was a terrible human being and a terrible prime minister, but maybe in a sense he was too reasonable. And that if he'd really found a way of being even more outrageous, he'd still be prime minister today. Mm -hmm. Might some of it be that the forces of reason have more of a hold over British society than they do America? I think the difference in the British system is that we're a parliamentary system, so the members of parliament can sack the prime minister. So Boris Johnson, and, and this is still very controversial with Boris Johnson's base, he wasn't removed by an election. He was removed by his own members of parliament rebelling against him and taking him down when he had a huge majority and he had another three years to run in office. They were just disgusted by the way that he was behaving. Uh, and I think that if, I don't know whether this is true, but I think it's possible that Donald Trump would have been more vulnerable if, if the U.S. system worked like that. Um, and yeah. I, I, I mean, I, but I, I keep coming back to the fact that 
it's tempting to focus a lot on the personalities of these people. And obviously they are very unusual individuals with these amazing TV celebrity backgrounds and their charisma. But it's also striking that the same thing is happening in 40 countries around the world. So there's something else going on, which is beyond the US or the UK. And I think it's something to do with Twitter and Facebook. It's something to do with the 2008 financial crisis. It's something to do with the failure to deliver on the promises of the 90s and 2000s, which means that it isn't just a question of defeating these individuals. It's a fight that's going to be on our hand for the next 10, 15 years. Right. Oh, for sure. And I always take uh, heed of what's going on in the world to think that the United States is not unique. But I also, I mean, for instance, you mentioned the Swedish being neo-Nazis. They are, but they've moderated to an extent where there is some debate over, I mean, I've had listeners to my show who know a lot about Sweden write in and tell me about the evolution of the Sweden Democrats. And there's something to be said for, okay, they're moderating towards uh, a more nationalist approach within the system that they have. And even Georgia Maloney isn't, has moderated and has not inhabited the worst fears of, I mean, in many ways, she's been better than Berlusconi, who wasn't a uh, avowed fascist. Um, so just to put that out there. But I was also thinking about sometimes in America, I think there is good evidence that we are a people largely untethered from reality. Kurt Anderson wrote a book about this called Dreamland. And we've always been a people who enjoyed or hearkened to the words of um, um, move, uh, religious movements and um, charlatans and snake oil. <laughs> and I think about the British system, but you would know better than I. And I know that there are protests around the 4G or 5G towers. And I know there's a lot of irrationality, but I, I think it hasn't taken hold as much. I think the dominance of the BBC, though it's waning, is still a bulwark against a lot of this nonsense. I think that even though Rupert Murdoch and the tabloids have an effect, it's not nearly as pervasive as the alternate reality of Fox News or the other networks to the right of them. Do you think that's true? That That's true. But you're right. It, it is waning. And, and we shouldn't be complacent because we're now people are trying to launch their own style, Fox News style networks in the UK. And of course, social media means that a lot of this stuff is circumvented. I, I do a, a podcast called The Rest is Politics. And I have a listenership now, which is about four times the you know subscription to our major newspapers, The Times, The Telegraph, all these kind of things. It, it's, it's very striking how much this media landscape changes. And it, it, it's an advantage, of course, for people like me, or, or even, to be honest, for people like Boris Johnson, that we can now communicate directly with the public without having to go through the old media outlets. But it's also a big risk, because it means that we create these echo chambers, we develop our own fan bases, and there aren't the traditional editors there controlling, measuring, checking for facts, trying to produce balanced coverage. Um, so I think we're, we're getting, I think that the, the truth of the matter is that the whole of the world ends up following the United States in, in weird ways. We, we just tend to be a, a little bit behind you. It, it's also true that, of course, it's true that the US has, um, I mean, one, one of the examples that I've been thinking about, I'm, I'm the, um, the president of Give Directly, which is a, a, a nonprofit that works on doing direct cash transfers to the extreme poor. 
And it's an amazing example. It's an American nonprofit. It's an amazing example of what I think as an outsider is the strengths and also challenges in the U.S. system. The strengths are an amazing group of Americans, Harvard and MIT trained economists, looked at the evidence, found out that they could completely revolutionize international development because they realized something very counterintuitive. If you gave cash to people, instead of providing traditional development assistance, you got much better results. And they proved it through medical-style trials where they followed people over 3, 6, 9, 12 years. So that's the strength of the U.S., revolutionary, radical, following the evidence. The weakness is the other side, which is we can't convince the U.S. government to this because there are a whole series of senators and congressmen who still want to buy maize from Idaho, ship it halfway around the world, give it to people uh, in earthquakes or floods or disasters where they're forced to sell the maize to get cash to buy what they want. So... I think about the U.S. as being the most mesmerizing, serious, impressive country, but which also, strangely, does things that make no sense to me. And I've never really been able to get my head around this, those two aspects of it. Don't worry, we haven't either. Last thing I want to ask you about is the podcast. I, I would say I never miss an episode. Did you know early on, were you sure that you and Alistair would have chemistry? <laughs> Thank you, Mike. We we didn't know it at all, and and it's it's an interesting thing. The rest is politics because he's you know he's a generation older than me. He comes from the left. I come from the the, the right. Uh, he's from a totally different social class. He's from a different part of the country to me. In a way, I think the chemistry is that that people like hearing different voices, different perspectives, and that the tension between us creates a kind of center ground, which is reassuring for people in a very divisive, polarizing age, that they're, they're reassured that we do occasionally agree about things, but they're reminded through those different aspects of accent and different perspectives um, that that agreement is quite hard won. Did you have a pre-existing friendship, relationship, or did it grow on the air, as it were? We barely knew each other. We'd met once in person, and it was an experiment. It was a fun idea that had come up with by a guy called Gary Lineker, who's a very famous English soccer player. Yeah. Uh, and he, he thought it would be interesting to put the two of us together. But we tried it for six weeks. And as you say, it's now the largest podcast in the UK. And uh, we, you know, we, we go on national tours and we sell out the biggest theaters in the country. and We do live shows. It's a very strange phenomenon. But I'm doing it with somebody who was a virtual stranger. And I've been doing it from, you know, I was recording the podcast yesterday from... New York. I've recorded it from Uganda, from Rwanda, from Kenya, from Jordan, from India. I mean, it's a, it's a very, very uh, interesting long distance relationship where we're getting to know each other by arguing on a podcast. In the American podcast uh, sphere, it is almost unknown for people of different ideologies to come together and uh, do a podcast that they enjoy and that people enjoy. I tried to do it. It was very hard. The, <laughs> the three guys agreeing with each other format is ascendant. And I, you, I, I think about your podcast and what makes it cut through. And it is the fact that you're not so far apart ideologically that were a uh, labor or left audience 
uh, maybe they would want to punish you in some ways, but I would say 90% of what you say doesn't really uh, strike them as anything other than factual and true. And then there is the part of it, which is chemistry and that you enjoy each other's company. But if the podcast weren't successful and if you disagreed too much, I think you wouldn't enjoy each other's company. I don't know. I don't know what lessons I could take trying to apply <laughs> the specifics of you two and the realities of the English system or the British system to America. Do you have any advice for an American aspiring podcaster who wants to oh, have a, my, my somewhat <laughs> of a left-right bridging? Mike, I think it's it's all to do with um, the strangeness of personalities. I think, as you know, and, and your listeners who, who love you will know that podcasts are quite an intimate thing. You're, you're in somebody's ear, you're developing a relationship with them week in, week out. They can follow the jokes over, over weeks and months. And right. they want to feel they, they like your voices, they like your perspectives, they like the tensions between you. It, I think it's it's luck. It's luck. It, it's you finding somebody who um, you describe. I mean, another thing I, I think is interesting. I don't know whether this is true in the US, but I worry sometimes that podcasts in the UK are too dominated by men. There was a joke at the Edinburgh Festival where they said that two women gossiping is, is called bitching. Two men gossiping is called a podcast. And and I think there is a, there's, there's a risk in the UK that we haven't found enough opportunity to really get enough women's voices coming forward. Well, we've solved that in the United States by putting two women together and having them fret about murder again and again and again. <laughs> <laughs> Rory Stewart is the host of the Rest is Politics podcast and a member of Parliament. His latest book, and you will find this in Amazon, is called How Not to Be a Politician. Just remember that title. Forget about any other titles that any other countries might be under the delusion that are in place. Rory, great talking to you. Thank you, Mike. Really appreciate it. And now the spiel, it's an Antoine Tig, our name for a period of time that the ancients defined as 21 days, which we loosely define around then, or not, or more, if the mood suits us. In this Antoine Tig, we answer mail, we make amends, we manifest our intentions. But it's not just a Antoine Tig, it is an Antoine Tig. I said that already, right? No, what I mean is, it's season two's quincentenary and twin tig the quincentenary the 500th episode since we came back in january of 2022 and thank you for writing and listening and giving us a review have you given us a review do so or recommending to a friend maybe that intersex conversation we just had or the utah governor conversation or the one with rory stewart i've just named the week's conversations send it to your tory leaning pals that actually really helps to spread the word to get the ears engaged and here, in the Antwintig, within the Quincentenary, within a second season, wrapped in an enigma surrounded by love, we get to 
the feedback that you've given us. Writing in to object by some small measure to my it's not the smoking, it's the stroking comments regarding the gentle lady from Colorado, Lauren Boebert, Megan Goman says that she thinks the media is right to harp on how Boebert was conducting herself regarding vaping in a theater because she was vaping right in front of a pregnant woman. Goman is a harpist and a conductor, so I give her some credence on these issues. But think about it. Isn't getting down with your date right in front of a woman who is living the consequences of such behavior, isn't that a little insensitive, a little in your face? And vaping is wrong because it's against the rules of the theater, and lying is wrong because lying is wrong. But does secondhand smoke really threaten fetuses? You would be shocked to know, and I looked into this, there are no real studies on the matter, none. Just a hundred articles saying there are no real studies on the matter, but they all conclude it can't be good. Well, of course it can't be good. But when did goodness enter the picture as regards Lauren Boebert? Clearly exited the picture when the lights were off. Another very recent piece of reaction came to me yesterday from a listener who wishes to remain anonymous, who objected to my conclusions in the case of Susanna Gibson running for Virginia's House of Delegates in a toss-up district to serve a legislative body that is today 50 Republicans, 46 Democrats, four vacancies. Susanna Gibson is shown to have engaged in some, eh, let's say, pornographic behavior for tips, i.e. money, against the rules of that service, by the way, not that that matters much. What matters much is this pretty much dooms her congressional chances, and I said, you got to take that into account. But my listener, who I'll call, I don't know, Dennis Thatcher, says his wife would be a great candidate for office, but she was once a stripper and did nude modeling, and that shouldn't disqualify her. I agree, it would be wrong and unfortunate if it did. I mean, I assume it would be unfortunate. Maybe Dennis's wife is a book-banning lizard person theorist. However, if she tried to hide her stripping and modeling, even though there was lots of evidence that she engaged in the stripping and modeling, and that knowing the evidence would almost certainly damn her chance in the eyes of the electorate if she kept it quiet, well, then she could be faulted. In Gibson's case, she won a Democratic primary, cleared the field of others who could win the seat, and then having this very big vulnerability, fair or not, that will probably serve as an obstacle to election, you know, none of that's good. Dennis, and of course, Dan Savage is so much better at this fake name thing, but Dennis writes, quote, Consenting people doing legal things with each other should not be a disqualification from seeking public office. Being gay was once a disqualifier, it isn't anymore. Yeah, I mean, I agree about what should and shouldn't, but I'm talking about more what is. And the whole idea of consenting people, that is a legitimate disqualifier depending on what the thing that the people are consenting to. That's not the end of all judgments. And in fact, no judgments. That's a fine mantra in trying to get social acceptance for a behavior. But voting is literally an exercise in rendering judgment. Would you vote for a guy who led big game hunting tours in Africa for a while? He lived there. It was legal in his country. Would that put you off? Might that put some reasonable voter off? It might. There's nothing non-consensual in that. I'm not talking on behalf of the Ibexes. Ibises? Montanans might like that guy. Brooklynites probably wouldn't. How about a Civil War reenactor? It's all consensual. Would turn a lot of people off. How about a professional poker player? 
a losing professional poker player, I would not vote for. That is worse. You have to be realistic and take into account the opinions of the people you're trying to appeal to. If they find what you're doing not appealing, it will certainly hurt your chances, your party's chances. And we're talking, especially in the Virginia House of Delegates, a situation where every single Democratic member of that body counts if you want to, say, keep abortion legal in the state. If you fail to account for this, even if you fail to account for the perceived unfair skeleton in your closet, you're not doing your duty as a potential public official. There are ways to get ahead of a scandal. There are ways to redefine a scandal, to normatively make the case that it's not a scandal, but Gibson's not doing that. And I know that Katie Hill in her Washington Post op-ed didn't do that either. So I was talking about the Pestigo fire the other day, and I shouldn't have been, I'll tell you that right now. I should have been talking about the Peshtigo fire. And I found out that it was pronounced Peshtigo through an odd source. Ari Berland wrote in to tell me of his favorite singer-songwriter, Chicago Farmer. That's his name. Might be a stage name, but then again, you have Brooklyn Decker and former NFL player London Fletcher. Actually, same naming convention, city plus occupation. Though, how many people are really making arrows these days? In any case, Chicago Farmer has a pretty good song about the Peshtigo fire. Devil's on the loose in Peshtigo, riding in a town on a wind. Got him shaking in the boots and the halos, burning the candle at both ends. Cry all night when you hear it, shake it to the rhythm of your cold. Shake them all loose in a desperate time Shake them all loose in a desperate war I'm on fire and I close my eyes Standing in the field in the pain My baby's up on Peshtigo Hill Praying like hell for the rain Praying like hell for the rain oh, Praying like hell for the rain Certainly one of the best Peshtigo Fire tunes in the acoustic genre on the market today. And now a correction. The dog who captured Danilo Cavalcante, escaped prisoner and short king, was not a German shepherd, as I said he seemed to be. I actually said seemed. I said seemed because I'm thinking when I saw the dog, you know, maybe that's a Belgian Malinois. Because they always, those dogs you think of German shepherds, always turn out to be... Belgian Malinois. And damn it, it's a Belgian Malinois. What kind of dog is the Belgian Malinois? Animal Watch lists its CV. The Belgian Malinois. Forget the Navy SEALs, the Marine Corps. We have a dog here who could claim the title for being the toughest, most athletic and most fearless and driven dog in the world. Light, agile, muscular, super fast with ninja-like abilities and a bite which it loves to use from the moment it can walk. From appearing to defy gravity by running up vertical walls to abseiling and jumping out of helicopters. The visuals of this Malinois are executing sort of advanced dog parkour. It's unbelievable. It's not hard to understand how a Malinois named Yoda sniffed out and clamped its jaws on an escaped five-foot-tall Brazilian who had not eaten in days. Well, maybe it's hard to understand naming a trained attack dog Yoda, the calm Jedi master so often advises against use of force. I guess the eventuality that an escaped five-foot-tall Brazilian would be caught by a dog and we'd find out the dog's name was 
Darth Maul. That is not something the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections was looking forward to. And also, speaking of language, yes, you heard that word, abseiling. It is what most of the English-speaking word uses for repelling. Abseiling from the German, abseilen, to rope down. Repelling from the French, to recall, to pull. Which means that German shepherds should abseil and Belgian Malinois should repel. Unless Yoda was a Walloon, Belgian Malinois, not a Flemish one. I'm making some assumptions here. But I make no assumptions of you, my friends, when I take into account your accompaniment on this journey to 500, 500 season two episodes. It's great. I've had so many wonderful interactions with you as the listener. I have listed some of them. And also, you think this is where I'm going to say, so you're the lobster of the Antoine Tig. No, I'm not. That'd be lame. You know who I should give the lobster to? I did once give one to Corey. I should give it to Joel and Corey. Those fellas are the backbone of the gist. We couldn't have had 500. We couldn't have had five episodes without them. Don't believe me? You have to understand the kind of mistakes I make on a regular basis. Mistakes that would certainly air if it weren't for Corey and Joel yelling no and diving in slow motion in front of the audio. You'd have heard this. Uh, Judge Jackson in the effing case of Grizzworld. I can, Grizzworld? Hello? Hello? Hello, Mushmouth. And this. According to a study conducted by Leprechaun, Leprechaun, look at me, because I'm drunk, that's why. And of course, who could forget this moment, or I should say, you never would have been able to forget this moment if Corey and Joel, among their many skills, hadn't been so adept at keeping my idiocy from the air. I think people are actually worried about one thing, and it's this. Visk, misk, musk, pissed. Yes, I am blessed to have them. But they're not the Lobstars. A listener is and must be, except that one time Corey was. And that listener, the Lobstar goes to the best Twitter or Reddit, uh, X, you want to call it X, or Reddit interactor-er. By the way, the Reddit page is on fire with spiciness. I like it. Check it out if you're so inclined. But you also have to accept the fact that if you do, you'll be the kind of person who goes on Reddit. But anyway, this was via email. Zach Sherwin writes, hi, Mike. Longtime listener and fan, I'm also a compulsive anagrammer, and I walked past the street sign in the attached photo last night and registered the letters as promising ones for rearranging. Yes, I like how the mind of the anagrammer says, ooh, I wonder what those add up to. And after working on it for a minute, it came to me, and he sends me the photo, and it's Arbol Street, A-R-B-O-L, and then S-T for street, Arbol Street. It came to me, Lobstar. Thanks for all the edifying listens. Now look, there's not necessarily a path to the lobster. I don't want everyone in the audience to start sending me pictures of or an actual lost bra. Or if you know about a slob rat, it's fine to keep that to yourselves. But this picture of Arbol Street works, and I like the implication. I could get inside Zach's mind, out for a walk, sees Arbol Street, has to anagram, can't not anagram, does anagram, and it's lobster. And the one person who would care, he sends a message to. I like it. It's also very subliminal, but not so subliminal that I couldn't suss it out as subliminal. But not so subliminal that Zach wasn't, in fact, for this episode 500 of just season two, the Lobstar of the Antoine Tig. (laughs) 
that's it for today's show. Corey Warr is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca arranges all the lobsters, has them all organized and in order, and is ready to execute like a Belgian Malinois of lobster parkourial intent. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, jeeperu, And thanks for listening.